You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. I'm excited to welcome to the program uh, Tanya Lokshina, who is the Russia Program Director and Senior Researcher at Human Rights Watch and is based in Moscow. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's exciting to have you on the program in part because uh, the work that you do, I think, is frankly so dangerous that I think it's uh, important to bring some attention and spotlight to people doing this kind of vital work that you do, being concerned about human rights in places where I think human rights are not considered a priority. Um, so I want... <laughs> I wanted to really, we have um, just a few minutes uh, to speak today, so I wanted to hit on kind of outline the three topics I wanted to discuss with you, three areas really. And uh, first is Syria, which I think has been a story that is uh, crucially important and viewed as important out west, but is not viewed as such, it seems like, in Russia. And then the second area, of course, is uh, Caucasus in Chechnya, which I know just a few minutes. And uh, the third is just the general situation in Russia itself, um, as you see it now. Your thoughts? Well, the Russia Office of Human Rights Watch has been in existence for some 25 years. So we are as old as uh, the contemporary Russian state. Uh, and therefore, I believe that we are in a good position to make conclusions about the current state of human rights in Russia and to assert without a shadow of a doubt that what we are dealing with today is the worst human rights crisis since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, you wanted uh, me to make a few remarks about Syria and Russia's role in Syria, and I'll try my best, provided that our Syria research, for all the obvious reasons, is not being carried out uh, from the Russia office. So I've not been personally involved in uh, uh, Syria research. Uh, I've never been in the field in Syria. Uh, at the same time, of course, in light of Russia's direct involvement in the conflict, uh, our Russia team and Syria team work together quite closely. Uh, in uh, 2016, uh, Russia continued combat in Syria mainly through airstrikes and civilian casualties increased quite significantly, including casualties from unlawful aerial attacks. It is oftentimes challenging to determine whether a Russian aircraft or a Syrian aircraft conducted a particular attack. At the same time, because Russia plays an active role in joint military operations, it shares responsibility for violations of international humanitarian law, there is the law of war, even when its aircraft are not directly involved. Now, those unlawful attacks by Russian and Syrian forces, including included attacks on schools and hospitals, uh, the use of airdropped cluster munitions uh, and the use of burned incendiary weapons. And despite repeated official denials by Russian authorities, convincing evidence indicates that Russia used both cluster munitions and incendiary weapons in numerous attacks on opposition-controlled areas. 
Uh, As regards the siege of Aleppo in September, uh, October this year, we have ample evidence to assert that Russian-Syrian coalition actually perpetrated some war crimes during the siege. As we are talking about a territory which is populated by, uh, which was at the time populated by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of civilians. And therefore, those who planned relevant attacks, they had to understand what sort of civilian harm was involved. Okay. Well, how do you find the sources that can be trusted? I think that is the, one of the big challenges out West is how, you know, there's a story that's been circulating in the last couple of days that is featuring um, a kid with paint and says that all of this Aleppo stuff was made up for a internet hoax or something like that. Obviously, RT, Russia Today, is behind and involved with some of these stories. But what can you suggest to people who are trying to figure out um, how to get through this barrage of media and figure out exactly actually what's going on. Our research methodology in Syria is not in principle different from our research methodology in other regions. We always cross-check information. We make sure that we speak to multiple victims. Uh, Witnesses, we analyze multiple. <clears throat> sorry, we always cross-check information. We make sure that we actually speak to numerous sources of information. We analyze photo and video footage, which is available to us. Uh, we always look for additional confirmations. Uh, one of the big challenges in Syria, of course, is that. Um, uh, this year, for example, we haven't had uh, that many opportunities to actually do field research on the ground. Even though uh, the members of our Syria team were able to travel to the region at least once during the year. But mostly, indeed, these days we do have to rely on photographic evidence, video evidence, uh, and interviews that we do with the use of telephone or internet-based messenger applications. We are confident in the validity of our research because, again, in documenting each and every incident, we do use multiple sources and we check the information very cautiously. All right. And I should mention to the listeners that the website is www.hrw.org, humanrightswatch.org, and I think that's a... Probably a good place to to get some of that information as well. Um, Tanya, if you could say uh, shift uh, your focus a little bit to uh, Chechnya and uh, ca- uh, Caucasus regions, uh, it seems on one hand uh, everything is quiet and under control. On the other hand, it sounds like it's a dictatorship at its most uh, um, well direct. Well, I would actually argue that these days it even seems to be quite and under control because just recently, as in this week, uh, there were armed clashes in Grozny, the capital of the Chechen Republic, which Ramzan Kadyrov has been 
ruling over for almost a decade quite ruthlessly. I, I stand Trump. corrected. You're absolutely right. Do you feel that that story changes the narrative? Uh, I don't think this particular story changes the narrative because this is definitely not the first time it's happening uh, in recent years. Uh, there was, for example, a major insurgent attack in Grozny in September 2014 with, again, armed clashes in the city and numerous victims among the law enforcement. Uh, now, from uh, the human rights perspective, of course, what's uh, extremely important and how, is how local authorities and federal authorities react to those attacks. And what Ramzan Kadyrov and his team have been doing in Chechnya for years now is exercising collective punishment which is explicitly bound by Russian law and explicitly bound by international law. So what they do if there is a particular attack carried out by insurgents, be that in Grozny in one of the villages, they actually go after family members of those insurgents, including fairly distant relatives, saying that as the insurgents themselves are not around to pay the price, their relatives would pay the price in full. Ramzan Kadyrov made numerous public statements about expulsing family members of insurgents from Chechnya without giving them the right to return, and about the need to punish them and specifically to destroy their houses. We've been documenting punitive house burnings against family members of alleged insurgents in Chechnya since roughly 2008, and they still continue. Also, just now, uh, we got some information about a case where in a particular village, under pressure from local authorities, a family of an alleged insurgent had to leave the village and had to leave the territory of Chechnya. They effectively got kicked out. Uh, now, with uh, the elections for the head of Chechnya in September this year, which Mr. Kadyrov was sort of doomed to win, as this was the decision of the Kremlin, uh, local authorities began a particularly vicious crackdown against even the mildest critics of Kadyrov and his policies. Now, I have to say that by even the mildest critics, I don't even mean individuals who dared criticize Kadyrov directly or openly. It's largely about those individuals who expressed some form of discontent with a certain aspect of the situation in Chechnya, be that corruption by local officials or some social and economic issues. Even more so, uh, many of those individuals did not express their dissatisfaction openly, but rather ranted uh, in closed groups on social networks, such as Facebook, for example, while they were still found by local law enforcement and security agencies and punished quite brutally. Those methods of punishment used against local dissenters include abduction-style detentions, torture, enforced disappearances, um, 
pressure on family members, direct retaliation against family members, death threats, and first and foremost, public humiliation. Uh, for Chechens, public perception of honor is particularly important. So for many of them, losing face in public is perceived as a fate worse than death. In that respect, as a method, as a method uh, used to terrify people in Chechnya, this particular method is fairly effective. Those who are caught criticizing the authorities are forced to apologize on local television, to apologize directly to Ramzan Kadyrov, to say that whatever claims they made about some negative aspects of the situation in Chechnya, those claims were lies and nothing but lies. In some, while well, extreme cases, are. Uh, the humiliation is particularly dire. For example, there was a notorious case of a young man uh, who, dared make, who dared make flippant comments about Kadyrov online uh, using an alias. And he was hunted down by Chechen security officials who stripped him of his pants and made him apologize on video camera for his supposed well, lies, apologize to Kadyrov and pledge allegiance to Kadyrov standing there half naked, which for a Chechen male, of course, is the worst conceivable fate. Um, now, the Kremlin is fully aware about the situation in Chechnya, about the extent to which uh, human rights are violated by the Chechen authorities. Attacks on critics uh, do not include solely uh, those inside Chechnya. Uh, sometimes journalists or human rights defenders who criticize Kadyrov are also attacked, including foreign journalists for that matter. Uh, just about uh, half a year ago, there was a vicious attack at a bus full of Russian and foreign journalists that were traveling to Chechnya to look specifically into human rights violations by local authorities. The bus was torched. Everyone on the bus got viciously beaten. Some of the passengers had fractures. One of them had uh, two teeth knocked out and so on and so forth. Uh, so, the situation is indeed pretty dire, and it's not only about the insiders, it's also about the outsiders, and it oftentimes receives coverage in the media. The Kremlin is very well aware of what's happening, but so far they wouldn't do anything to bring in Ramzan Kadyrov and his team, uh, except some, well, very rare and very mild critical remarks about not sufficient cooperation with federal authorities. You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge, in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. Joining me on the program is Tani Lokshana, who is the Russia Program Director and Senior Researcher at Human Rights Watch and is based in Moscow. 
Uh, Tanya, in a few remaining uh, minutes, if you could uh, share your thoughts on what is going on in sort of, say, mainland Russia, or or perhaps, you know, just because there's obviously Moscow, St. Petersburg, and everything else, and they have slightly different or maybe similar problems, but different scale. Um, your thoughts on the state of human rights in today's Russia? Yes, indeed. Whenever we are talking about the Northern Caucasus, we are often being told it's one special place. Chechnya is an exception. This is not the rule. But some of the things that we see in Chechnya, we also see them on the mainland. It's just that the scale is different. Uh, this year, the government in Russia tightened control over the already shrinking space for free expression association and assembly, and it further intensified pressure on independent critics. The parliament, the parliament adopted new laws expanding powers of law enforcement and security agencies, including their powers to control online speech. As your audience may be aware, the parliamentary vote in Russia in September this year resulted in the ruling party, the United Russia, also known as Vladimir's Putin's own party, gaining constitutional majority in the state Duma, the lower chamber of the parliament. This, in practice, means that whatever piece of legislation the Kremlin wants to push through the parliament, that piece of legislation is going to be adopted swiftly without any debate. Russia also continued to support uh, <clears throat> insurgents in eastern Ukraine, but did nothing to rein in human rights abuses perpetrated by them. As regards Russia-occupied Crimea, it is swept up in a real human rights crisis. Now, in the core of this uh, political crackdown in Russia, there is a particular piece of legislation called the Foreign Agents Law. Incidentally, this law was adopted in 2012, almost immediately after Vladimir Putin's return to the Kremlin for his third presidential term. The authorities used this law to demonize as foreign agents and in Russian, in Russia's context, that can only be interpreted as foreign spies. Dozens advocacy groups that accept foreign funding and work on varied issues from uh, <clears throat> helping, say, prisoners or orphans to defending civil and political rights, uh, to providing assistance to refugees, migrants, uh, or HIV-positive persons. Uh, that list of foreign agents now includes close to 150 non-governmental organizations and some leading human rights groups in Russia are also on that list. 30 organizations chose to close down altogether rather than accept the shameful label. In June this year, the authorities for the first time criminally prosecuted an activist under the law on foreign agents, charging her 
with malicious invasion of registering her organization under the law, and if found guilty, that woman in the south of Russia will face up to two years of imprisonment. Tanya, let me ask you this. Uh, we literally have just a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to ask you, what can people do in the West, outside of Russia, if they are not happy? Because, I mean, on one hand, they can think they're lucky stars. They're not in Russia. But if they want to make uh, the world a better place, let's say, and it does seem like the only thing that uh, Russian uh, power seems to care about and listen to is pressure from outside. What can uh, listeners, people, you know, average people do? Well, actually, first and foremost, they should pay attention to what's happening inside Russia, because as regards Russia's foreign interlocutors, they're mostly preoccupied with uh, Russia's foreign policy, or rather with whatever Russia is now doing in Syria, whatever Russia is doing in Ukraine. And those issues, which are, of course, tremendously important, they rather eclipse domestic developments for outside audiences. While, like I said, what we see in Russia today is a true human rights crisis. Russia these days is a country where our independent human rights organizations are slammed as foreign spies. It is a country where people go to jail solely for exercising their right to peaceful protest. Right now, a peaceful protester, Ildar Dadin, is serving a sentence of two and a half years in prison solely due to the fact that he carried out a series of single-person PCATs uh, criticizing Russia's policy in Syria and Ukraine. This activist now alleges beatings by penitentiary officials and the uh, investigation authorities are not doing much to look into his allegations. This is the country Russia is today. Russia is also the country which adopted big brother laws to uh, reinforce uh, surveillance powers of law enforcement and security agencies. Uh, Russia forces providers to store uh, all communication data uh, for up to six months and all metadata for up to three years and make it available to security services whenever they want to have a look. This is what Russia is today, and it's very important for people to actually pay attention to understand what's happening and to also understand that What Russia is doing in Syria or Ukraine is inalienable from what's happening inside the country. Well, and I I couldn't agree more because really uh, every action that uh, Kremlin seems to take, whether it's Crimea annexation, whether it's war in Ukraine, whether it's war in Syria, are all, um, I think, widely viewed uh, as attempts to distract people's attention from the fact from, that the country itself is having, uh, as you said, a humanitarian crisis and a variety of crises. Um, so I think it is, you, you, I couldn't agree with you more. Tanya, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And I hope we can continue this in the future. Take care.
Absolutely choose. You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW, in Whitewater, Wisconsin. You're listening to Rashkin Report. <laughs> 